0: listening to Law and Gospel on Monday, May the 11th in the year of our Lord 2020. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we take a look at a reading for the coming Sunday, which is the sixth Sunday of Easter, May the 17th in the year of our Lord 2020. The first reading is from Acts 17. The second one is from 1 Peter 3. And the third one is The gospel from John chapter 14. We're going to be taking a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. So, without further ado, verse 13 to 22 is the reading. Let's begin with verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, that needs a little explanation. Because it says, now, who is there to harm you? So what was the apostle Peter talking about in verse 12 that indicates that nobody can really harm you? Let me read verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is is against those who do evil wow that's pretty comforting for christians that not only are the eyes of the lord on you the righteous righteous not because of your own good works but because of the works of jesus christ now given to you and his ears are open to your prayers call upon me in the day of trouble i will deliver you and the face of the lord is against those who do evil. So we have a real friend, and that's why verse 13 can begin. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, what does it mean to be zealous for what is good? That's verse 13. Well, the word zealous, really means imitator or follower. And the New American Standard does say, if you prove zealous, but the King James says, if you be followers of that which is good. Now, what does it mean to be that which is good? Remember at the creation of the world, after God finished creating everything, he says, and this is good. What did that mean? It means it was accomplishing the purpose for which it was created. So if we as Christians are zealous for what is good, we're followers of God in doing what is good. And that's a real task for us today. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, what does that mean to be suffering for righteousness sake? Well, how many of us have friends, relatives, neighbors, co-workers who really oppose the Christian message when it comes to speaking about the pro-life, about the kind of marriage that should be going on, about drugs, about all kinds of areas? And we Christians stand apart from that. And we are often made fun because we're old-fashioned. We're not up to date. Well, we suffer for righteousness sake. Here in the United States, there are not that many deaths as in other countries overseas for being a Christian alone. And so we thank God that he protects us here. And even though there are some state officials that do not want worship services to occur. It's not because they're forbidding us to teach Christianity. It's for health reasons, and those appear to be okay. And each congregation can take a look at the rules and work with them to continue to do worship services on the Internet My home congregation, St. Paul de Pere, continues to give communion in groups of less than 10. You phone up ahead of time, make an appointment, and go ahead and do that. So there are a number of ways in which congregations are continuing to have worship. And of course, there are those like myself who do sermons, uh, Bible studies, and videos to help congregational members. All right, verse 15, 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The uh, King James says, always to give an answer to every man that asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Uh, The New American Standard, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now there's two ways to give a defense of Christianity. The one is to use reason. The other is to use the Bible. I have a hard time finding out anywhere where reason is used by Jesus, the prophets, or the apostles to convince someone of the truth of the Christian faith. Notice, on the road to Emmaus, what does Jesus use? He uses Old Testament passages. And recently, we had the death of a martyr. Because Philip died by being stoned. And how did, excuse me, Stephen. And how did that happen? He was quoting the Old Testament, showing that the people of his day were doing the same thing against the prophets of that day as did their forefathers in persecuting and putting them to death. So I truly believe that the way you give a reason for the hope that is in us is to quote the Bible. Now, why is that important? From a Lutheran point of view, we believe, teach, and confess you do not come to faith because reasonably you decide, I need to be a Christian, and therefore you make a decision or invite Christ into your heart. That is false teaching, because then you take credit for being saved. And you can ask some evangelicals, how do you know you're saved? And they'll say, well, on such and such a date, I invited Christ into my heart. See, they're taking credit for it. That's like, well, asking a adopted child, how were you adopted? Well, when I was two months old, I decided to smile at two people who were looking at me and therefore I moved them to adopt me. No, that's not how adoption occurs. In fact, many people adopt a child without ever seeing them. One of my recent helps in adoption was a child from Russia that they had not yet seen except in photographs and such. So the main point of 1 Peter 3.15, is the way we give a defense for what we believe is to quote Bible verses, because the Holy Spirit works through word and sacrament, not by means of reason to convince someone that indeed, guess what? Christianity is true. Well, moving on. When you do, quote the Bible, when you do witness, verse 16, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, what is that talking about? What what does it mean to have a good conscience? It means that you don't attempt to to manipulate people. For example, you wouldn't say, well, look, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you'll have many blessings. Uh, There's pastors who are actually saying that today. And when they use the word blessing, they're not talking about the blessings from the Bible that can occur even when you're at a funeral. They're talking about wealth, cars, good family nice house great job etc nowhere in the bible is that taught and the evidence of that is take a look at the apostles traditionally all but john died a martyr's death and yet they would say that they were blessed because they had a good conscience in the sense that they were not going against what God wanted them to say. They were telling in consensus the word of God. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Well, all you have to do to get that is go to a prison and ask the people there, are you suffering right now? And they will say, yes, it is definitely suffering. And that word suffer simply means to having or undergoing an experience that is not happy. It's sad. Well, obviously, when Christians are put in jail for preaching the word of God, they're suffering. But that's God's will that they be put in jail. And it's also God's will that people are put in jail for doing evil. And it's important to remember the distinction, the Suffering for doing evil, the devil is clapping. The suffering for doing good, the angels are clapping. And once more, Peter moves to Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Wow. You got about 10 sermons just out of that verse alone. Let's take a look at part of it. For Christ, and the word for Christ there is the Greek word Christos for the Hebrew word Messiah, referring to Jesus. He also suffered. And that's the same word used about we suffering for standing up for the message of Jesus Christ. But there's a word there, for Christ also suffered once. In other words, a better understanding of that is once for all. Just one time did he suffer. He didn't have to continue suffering after he died on the cross. Whereas in the Old Testament, animals again and again were sacrificed. Jesus once. For what reason that he might bring us to God? Now, that's really important that that is said that way. In other words, he is the one bringing us to God. We are able to approach God through Christ. You want a Bible verse? You were a lost sheep. God found you. He put you on his shoulders. He carried you home. I mean, how many incidents in the scripture and events in Jesus' life, he is the one who is the cause of their salvation. And he is... The just for the unjust. The unjust, that's referring to those who are unrighteous in God's sight. You see, in God's sight, you were unrighteous. You were a sinner. Jesus suffered for you, even though he was just. He was just in that he did no sin. But when he died on the cross... He had become sin for you. That occurred at his baptism. And Second Corinthians chapter 5 makes that clear, that Jesus became a sinner to die as a human being for other sinners. The just for the unjust. And how did he bring us to God? He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Now, when did that occur? Putting to death in the flesh occurred on Good Friday. Being made alive in the Spirit took place on the day of resurrection. And so it's important to understand that what follows is Jesus in his resurrected state. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, verse 19 is translated in different ways. In the King James, it says, which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. But I believe the ESV and the New American Standard do have the proper translation. ESV, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison and the New American Standard, and he made proclamation to the spirits in prison. In other words, it's not the word for preaching the gospel. It's actually a word for proclaiming victory. In fact, it's a word used about the marathon. Remember when the gentleman ran back to the city to say that the battle had been won? He died when he reached the city. But he proclaimed the good news that the battle had been won. It's the same Greek word. So that's what Jesus did. By being alive in the spirit, by being raised from the dead, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. now, who were these what what's what's a prison that's being talked about here? well, verse twenty because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, you may not be aware of this, but most baptismal fonts have eight sides. And the reason for that is because of the eight persons in Noah's family that were saved on the ark, the only human beings saved. So to whom was Jesus proclaiming victory over the evil spirits that had drowned in the flood in the days of Noah? And now comes the big point that First Peter makes, beginning with verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. I, I don't understand how Christians don't believe that baptism saves when it's very clear in verse 21 that it says baptism now saves you. And the word for save is the word used for salvation it is the mission of the messiah to save us but what kind of salvation not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ what does that mean baptism did not remove the dirt from the body Well, what dirt do you have? It's called sin. Sin by thought, word, or deed. That's what baptism does not save you from. You're still a sinner. But it saves you as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, stop and think about that. When do you have a bad conscience? You have a bad conscience when you do something wrong. And you're worried about getting caught. People don't have a bad conscience if they don't think they've done something wrong or if they don't think they're going to be caught. I'm always kind of interested in these crime movies where people did a crime maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago. And they think they're free uh, until DNA came on the scene. And then they have some evidence from 20, 30, 40 years ago that shows who the person was that did the crime. So now they have a bad conscience. The conscience is that part of you which says, I'm in trouble. What baptism does, it takes that trouble away. What what is the trouble? Eternal punishment. Well, how do we know that's taken away? Peter explains it. It's taken away through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, had not risen from the dead, guess what? He's still in the grave, he's still paying for your sins. And Paul makes very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then you are still in your sin. And you better have a bad conscience because hell is going to be your destination. But because he has risen from the dead, all who trust in Jesus Christ, and when we talk about trusting in Jesus Christ, We're not talking about, oh, I believe he really was a person who was a good person, and he taught a lot of good things. No, no, no. Trusting in Jesus Christ means you believe his promises that he gave you. What promises? Promises on the basis of his death and resurrection. The promises of the forgiveness of sins, the promises of the robe of righteousness. That's what we're talking about here. And those are the promises that God has given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why baptism gives you a good conscience, because you do not have to fret about that eternal punishment that should have been yours that Jesus took away. Now, Peter says more than it was just because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And if you want to see that, just read Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, because there Jesus ascends into heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And being subjected to him means they are under his ordinance, very important words. In other words, they are subordinate to Jesus Christ, and they have to submit to his control. Now, the good angels don't mind that at all, but the evil angels do. So this 1 Peter chapter 3, 13-22, has so much to say to us about how Jesus brings us to God and how just as eight people were saved in the waters of the flood, so also we are saved in the waters of baptism, not by getting rid of our sin, but by giving us a good conscience where we no longer are afraid of death. On tomorrow's Law and Gospel with Mark Smith, we'll be taking a look at the hymn for the fifth Sunday, or sixth Sunday of Easter, And that is, dear Christians, one and all, rejoice. Look forward to talking to you tomorrow.